0: we have MyQA ion and ion rt from iba for automated patient specific qa for photon electron and proton radiotherapy and we also have mr box from our ai suppliers at therapanacea allowing ai powered mr only workflows for a more consistent and high quality planning pathway for sgrt
1: Hi everyone, before we get going with this podcast we'd really like to highlight an important annual flash survey from Radiotherapy UK charity that will open from 29th August till 12th September 2023. This is your opportunity as a member of the radiotherapy workforce to share your experiences of what is happening on the ground. So last year over 10% of the entire radiotherapy workforce responded from all disciplines and the key findings received national coverage from BBC Newsnight, national papers and in Parliament.
2: A few of their key findings from last year included 84% of respondents said that they do not have the workforce in place to meet current patient need. Eight in 10 respondents felt that the current environment had caused them or a colleague to consider leaving. Over one third said that they didn't have the appropriate IT and technology infrastructure to support the delivery of the most up-to-date techniques. So please do take part, have your say, have your voice heard and help raise awareness of the crucial need to invest and improve radiotherapy services in the UK. Hello everyone and welcome to RadChat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 102. I don't know where all of these come from. Um, My name is Jo McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Joel Canderson. Hi everyone, so a huge thank you to our last guest, John Archer, who discussed his career proton therapy and managing the proton boom service at the Christie in Manchester. So, if you've not had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So I'm so excited to introduce our guest Anisha Patel who will be discussing her career as a GP, her media career, writing a book, her experience of cancer and all her amazing advocacy work. So we have to remember we need to try and keep it in 45 minutes because that is a lot of content of, of what, which potentially uh, you may cover. So Morning, thank you so much for joining us. Oh thanks
3: guys for having me, it's really exciting to be here.
2: And uh, are you having any breakfast while we're chatting today? Have you got a coffee?
3: I've got I've got my water here. I'm <laughs> ready and awake. The children have got me up, so I'm all, I'm all good to go.
2: <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us so early. It's the day in the life of a GP when you're up this early and you're all ready to <laughs> podcast.
3: <laughs> absolutely, definitely.
2: Multitasking before the day begins. Yeah, absolutely. So, Anisha, for anyone who doesn't know anything about you? Do you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and maybe your career pathway?
3: Yes, sure. I'm Anisha. I am 43. I had to think about that. Um, I basically qualified as a doctor in 2002 um, and I went on to train to actually work in hospital medicine for about eight or nine years and I wanted to become a respiratory consultant, worked in intensive care, did all my medical jobs. Um, but along the way I found my now husband who's a gastroenterologist and after we got married we realised two hospital careers was really really hard work. Nights, weekends, um, all the exams, just it was really really hard so I decided to jump to general practice just for the quality of life issue but secondly because I actually, the thing I love is patients. I love patient contact. I love talking to people. So I was like, right, actually, this is probably the best career, uh, career move for me because I get to do all of that. And with me, I took over my respiratory expertise. So I'm now a general practitioner uh, with a special interest in respiratory medicine, but I also specialize in women's health and family planning now and menopause, which is just so huge at the minute. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a busy GP. Um, and I've got two children who are 11 and 12 now. Um, and uh, unfortunately back in 2018 whilst in the midst of my sort of general practitioner career I sort of just become partner you know was burning the candle at both ends two small children five and six you know back to having a social life um, and I started to get a few symptoms um, which ended up me having bowel cancer or rectal cancer stage three in September 2018 Um, and obviously that was a huge Huge blow. Um, ironically, my husband was the director of bowel cancer screening program. He removes early bowel cancers, um, and yeah, our lives were turned upside down. But um, even from the day that I was diagnosed, I sort of said, you know, we've got this, we've got this double hat, dual hat thing now. Being a patient and being a doctor, surely we can do something with this. And I think from that day on, I decided that I needed to turn it into a positive. And I guess over the past. I'm nearly five years still, touch wood, all clear. I've got my fifth five-year scan in October. Um, you know It's been a really up and down roller coaster, but I've managed to turn my hand to do a few other things to try and live positively after having a diagnosis. Um, and so now as a result, as you mentioned, I work within the media. I try and um, sort of, I'm a cancer campaigner. Uh, health educator and as you mentioned I've written a book recently to try and help people through this process because even as a doctor I was so lost I can't believe how how lost I was I felt like we should know how to do this but there is no nothing in med school ever could prepare you for, for this that's for sure.
1: Thank you for sharing Anisha when you say nothing could have prepared you do you mean preparing to be a patient?
3: Absolutely I think you know, for me, sitting on the other side of that table and that loss of control was so, so difficult. And I actually went into a denial phase pretty much through my whole treatment. I became very detached from my illness and from treatment because that was the only way I knew how to go through it. Whereas my husband was very pragmatic, you know, as the doctor and the specialist and knew all the contacts and what was going on. And was always one step ahead in many ways went into sort of pragmatic mode. So we were both had very different coping mechanisms. So it was really interesting. Um, and, you know, it was only till after I finished treatment that it, I was just in an abyss. I didn't know what was going on. I felt so alone. I didn't know where to go for help. And actually that day that your oncologist signs you off from treatment is the most, um, you just feel like you've fallen in a pit. And as a doctor, I hadn't appreciated that. I really hadn't appreciated how alone and how dropped and how suddenly uh, scary it was even though I'd just been told I was cancer free.
2: Do you find Anisha that because of your experience you're a better GP? 100% Um, I struggled to go back to work and I I
3: blogged my way through my cancer treatment um, on Instagram as doctors get cancer too and I've talked a lot about my struggles with returning to work and also the aftermath of of cancer and going through treatment. And um, with going back to work, uh, it was obviously very triggering. But what I had brought with me back was a different set of glasses and listening ears um, to communicate, listen and empathise with my patients. My empathy is so much more. And Let's not forget, when you go through cancer treatment, it's not just the physicality of it. Um, I understood more about the ripple effect on the wider group, on the family, on the friends. So actually, I see a lot of patients who say, my mum's going through cancer, my friend's just died. And actually, I really get that ripple effect now of what's happening. Um, I can empathise with all the mental health um, issues that people have so much more, because as someone who never had mental health problems before, cancer experienced a whole variety of things from anxiety to ptsd to panic attacks um, and actually really saying to patients i get it and you know what i used to tell my patients for example i'll go and do some mindfulness i found mindfulness really really difficult so actually having that blanket just go and try this i know it doesn't work for everyone but now i have a whole set of tools that i learned And I researched and tried that I can share with my patients now. So I hope that they they get the benefits of that. I know my husband and friends were worried that how would I manage with people coming in with an ingrowing toenail or a cold, but actually it didn't matter because every patient's problem is important to them. It doesn't matter how big or small. And I even felt that with, you know, things that I worried about post-cancer, things that were, you know, seemed small in the grand scheme of things. So I had a scar from my port here and i really struggled to touch it and i had a big keloid scar and some would argue well that's cosmetic well actually it itched and it's not a big deal i had bigger problems going on but actually that was something that was important to me
2: i suppose you've explained absolutely perfectly why it's so important within health education that we have the patient voice because you know it's it's great to be able to have all the theoretical underpinning evidence-based medicine thinking about research yeah. you know all those arms are, s- are so important to allow us to do our jobs but fundamentally unless you have been a patient and experienced every type of pathology you don't know what it's like to necessarily go through that and i think what you've explained perfectly is how that patient voice can help manufacture maybe a better clinician a better healthcare professional to be more maybe empathetic or um, at least align with people's views and, and facilitate more personalised care.
3: I completely agree and actually that's, that's why I wanted to use my voice to try and engage. So I'm in, I'm in a sort of, I straddle two communities of the cancer community and the health care professional community and actually I've heard obviously all the things from a cancer community that they feel That maybe they're not listened to, or where they feel we could do better. And actually, to be able to um, relay that back and try and make that small change is is really powerful. And actually, with any conference, I'm sure you'll agree that you go to and you have a patient voice or a speaker, it is always the talk that gets the most applause and that is most listened to because actually it's more meaningful. Um, And as I say, you could read, I could have read every textbook under the sun, but nothing will prepare you um, for this unless you've trodden the path.
1: Anisha, can I ask you a slightly personal question? Yes. Um, So we've talked briefly on Instagram before about representation in healthcare and especially in the cancer communities of people who get through treatment or who don't. But we've also talked about stigma. So we're from communities where cancer is frowned upon or someone has cancer, everyone either will ignore them or will help them as much as possible how did your family find your diagnosis
3: so that's a really good question so i was very open with my diagnosis as you know which is probably unusual you know representation you know being asian there aren't many asian voices out there female young talking about cancer as openly as i probably probably do but i think that's the point um, and I think that's what I wanted to get out there, that actually cancer doesn't discriminate and it can happen to people like me and we're not immune to it and it shouldn't be a taboo subject. And we know in, in cultures, in black communities, Asian communities, you know, we are diagnosed later. Uh, we don't do as well and there's all the stats and evidence particularly in black women in breast cancer. Um, and actually there's a lot of education and work that needs to be done within these communities. With my own family, um, they were very um, receptive. To be honest, my mum and, and, and dad and brothers, um, you know, all took it on board. I think my dad really struggled. I think my dad really struggled with it. He didn't know what to do. Um, and actually, um, our relationship broke down. Uh, and, it, and it Because I think he was scared and he didn't know what to do. Um, and I was very close to my dad, so it's taken a it's taken a while, but thankfully we have worked through it. Um, I haven't forgotten, but I've you know it, we have let things go and we've spoken to it. And my brothers have helped um, sort of navigate that because we were all really shocked um, because the children are very close to him, um, and so there is still within families, even though my family are quite um, you know open and. Uh, for were very westernised, you know, they're, they're with it, you know, um, he he struggled with it, and we see this all, all over, we see this all over, and we actually see a lot of people trying to hush, you know, don't talk about it, I actually spoke to my therapist when I was writing my book about this very topic, and she says most of her clients are white, and I'm saying, but we're all getting affected as well, and she's saying, but it's, it's taboo. So one of the girls that she was seeing um, said, I'm coming, but please don't tell my family. I can't tell my family that I'm coming to counselling for my cancer because they, that she was told that she just needs to get on with it and don't publicise it. And there's so much work to be done. There really is. And I think it starts with us educating our, our children as well and being open Um, and obviously getting people out there like me like other individuals who've experienced this to go you know what it's okay to talk about this and we can make a difference.
2: Thank you for sharing that because I know it's always really hard isn't it when you've got a very public profile and even within your family they're struggling but you know that the advocacy that you're you're doing is making a massive impact and, and that representation it must be so difficult to kind of navigate that how do your family cope with all the advocacy work because I would imagine from a cultural perspective you know oh you know she's now going public and she's now on (laughs) this morning (laughs) and actually you know how do you go from just being within your family to then them turning on the tv and go right okay she's on the telly now as well talking about it
3: so you know three you know now everyone has got their heads around it you know my mum and dad and family couldn't be proud of their so sweet I don't think they've ever told me so many times in my life how how proud they are of me and sending it to all their friends and family so no it is amazing and I've got their support and they are just you know this is what you were meant to do um my family very much believe my mum particularly things happen for a reason i don't think cancer should happen to anyone for a reason but um that this was i guess part of my calling um in terms of my immediate family in terms of my su- uh, my children and my husband you know they are extremely supportive but you know this is a really good question and something that i've never been asked because it is an impact on everyone and it's an impact on me as well you know talking about cancer all the time and um, you know, for the family as well, you know, she's recording another podcast or she's popping on to Lorraine or whatever she's doing. You know, it is it is an intrusion on their time as well. And I'm very, very mindful of that. And so I know when my family need me, I pull back and therefore my consistency isn't always there, which is not ideal in this world that we're in. But that's how it has to be. And I'm OK with that. So I get a lot of people saying, Anisha, you need to be consistent, you need to do this, this it doesn't i've got a young family and they come first and you know one thing cancer has obviously told me is that taught me is you know time is precious and the time that i have i want to spend as much as i can with them but getting that balance is difficult because also for me to keep moving forwards after cancer this is my coping strategy so for and i think my husband particularly understands that he understands for me to live positively as much as I can every day knowing that I still live every day with bowel dysfunction and sciatica and early menopause and all the other things that the fallout of cancer treatment if I do this this gives me utter joy in the sense that I feel like I can hold someone else's hand I feel that I can chibi someone else to go to their cervical uh, screening or that I can advise someone else about menopause on platforms big and small it doesn't matter how you're doing it but it gives me that it's an extension of my day job I guess isn't it it's that um, you know that altruism of wanting to just make a difference because I know how lonely I felt on this journey and I had tools and I had knowledge and as much as I want to I want to share that and I think that's what my children and Gareth see that that does give me a buzz, and I always ask my children's permission. Now, I have to say, I'm very good about saying, You know, I was offered to write a book, guys, it's going to be a lot of time at a laptop, what do you think? And sometimes, you know, they're just like, Mum, are you crazy? Why would you not do that? Or I remember being asked to uh, go on to something for BBC last minute. I said, Oh, guys, you know, I'm going to have to get some logistics for school. You're going on the BBC why that's not even a question and so I know there's that other side of them which you know they're super proud of what I'm doing they do think it's a bit cool sometimes and you know I'm glad but I also know that you know it's getting that balance and I don't always get it right but I am trying to do my best.
1: Anisha if you went back would you do it all again and if you hadn't had cancer treatment do you think you'd still be doing all this advocacy work?
3: So I've spoken to my husband lots about this, Um, he is my greatest supporter, he is my sounding board for all the things that I do but he's very much behind the scenes and that's where he likes to stay but I said to him on the days that I am really upset by cancer and I still have those days when my body's not doing what I feel it's doing or it's um, prohibiting me from doing things, I would give cancer back in a heartbeat. There is no way that I would go through what I have or put my family through, most importantly, and friends, what I went through. Um, because there is, although there was a lot of guilt that came with cancer, um, and you know, I've dealt with that, but I would give it all back. Um, I'm really pleased I'm able to do all this advocacy work, and I've always wanted to work in health education. Um, and I was you know planning to become a uh, what's it called a tutor for you know future uh, general practitioners coming around so there's always been that in my head I don't think I'd be doing you're right I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing now if it hadn't been for this because it's opened my eyes to a whole world where there's so much work to be done and uh, um, voices that are needed and as I say big or small we all have our part to play in this and it's so so important
2: Anisha, can I ask about being a GP? Because obviously, when we are the treatment side of things, it's very easy to see patients coming through who maybe their diagnosis were, was missed initially by their GP. But the, I don't necessarily think people understand or realise just how many patients you see, but also the, the small minority of the cancer patients that just one GP would see per year Um, can you tell us about maybe kind of your role as a GP and potentially kind of maybe some of the challenges that you face within within that that field
3: yeah so this is a common common thing that I obviously um, get told about um, and it was one of the things I was most scared about with with my platform actually was you know I was dealing with my own diagnosis and then there was a lot of sort of I was diagnosed late and I'm genuinely so sorry that, you know, if you've had to go and see someone several times and that's definitely something that I always, I, I sort of publicised my diagnosis and my age and everything else about me within various healthcare professional groups to say, look, please remember it doesn't discriminate because I think historically at med school we were taught in a certain way. For example, we were told taught bowel cancer was a disease of a white, six-year-old, overweight, meat-eating, um, alcohol-happy male, and I don't fit any of those those things. Um, so I think, with regard to general practice, um, you know, there is education that's needed both ways. And I'm not saying that you know we don't need to spread the word, and 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 obviously we need to do better. But yes, we will see um, and speak to. You know, at le- you know, sometimes as many as, you know, 40 patients, I've spoken to 50 patients in a day before, usually it's much less than that. Um, and it's a whole variety of things. And often we will see patients one or two times before we may, you know, at least before we refer, because we need to do blood tests, we need to examine, we need to do a workup. And then we need from there to decide where the best place is to go if we can't manage that in general practice. We do have strict guidance in terms of two week rules and cancer referrals so if we see a breast lump you will most likely be referred pretty much you know on the spot if not brought back after your period because breasts are less lumpy for example after a period so sometimes you might be brought back but it doesn't mean we're not always thinking about it Um, and most things we see in general practice won't end up in cancer although that is in my or in our heads as the one differential we must, must rule out. Um, so, uh, so I think that's the key is that we've got lots of things to think, you know, is it this, 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 this? We've got a big sieve and we've got to sieve it out, but we, don't, we can't do that on the first consult. And people often say I've had to see my GP two or three times, but sometimes genuinely, even though I'm on like extra high alert for cancer, I still need to see those patients sometimes a few times to sieve out and make sure it's not something else that I can manage in primary care before I refer you. So I think I think that's the key. There are so many things out there. We need to sieve out the other things first.
1: Having been through the pathway yourself with your patients now in primary care, how do you talk about scan anxiety with them? So even if it's a routine scan and it's I don't know, it might be for something else completely different, not cancer. But how do you sort of reassure them or help them navigate that?
3: Yeah, anxiety is real. I'd never heard about it till obviously having cancer. Um, and that fear of scans is, is something that I've realised is actually really normal. Um, I took my son for an MRI recently of his knee and he had it. And I had to talk through it with him. Um, and I'm probably not the best person to take to a scan, but actually it was, you know, it was talking him through that process of, you know, you'll be looked after and trying to remember that, you know, you will be looked after, um, that we can't control what's what's ahead of us. I found distraction really helpful at scan time. So it, I'd often sort of busy myself with work. I'd make sure I'd had dates in the diary with friends, had my exercise all sorted out. Um, and although it was exhausting distracting myself, it was the best way I found of, of coping um, with not only getting through the scan, but then waiting for that result as well. If you're nervous about the scan, please tell your radiographer. I always say that. Um, and you know, I said to my son's radiographer, you know, he's a bit nervous, so that they can try and, you know, take that extra minute um, to make sure they're all right, talk things through at a slower pace. Um, and I've had patients ask me, um, you know, to give them. A little bit of diazepam beforehand in the in the past and I'm I say to them that's fine as long as you take someone with you to the scan as long as you ta- tell the team that are looking after you that you've taken this because you know for some people it is so traumatic and I it was extremely claustrophobic and and that got worse with cancer because of the MRI because of what it signified and it was a real struggle in fact my husband's head was in the MRI scanner with me at one point because I just couldn't I just couldn't deal with it so in an MRI scanner it's fine to take someone but you know unfortunately in CT scanners you're you're on your own but you know the radiographer can talk to you through the process you can have music so you know there are ways of doing this but you know for me distraction was key getting through that that anxiety point, and trying not to jump too many steps ahead keeping active eating well trying to get your sleep and just sort of putting all those you know healthy lifestyle tactics in as, in as well, because it's emotionally draining going through the process. And I remember afterwards, if I get a clear scan result, you know the first thing people think is, let's celebrate. And I was just exhausted in the slump thinking, wow, I'm really relieved. I feel I should be happier than this, but actually I'm just really exhausted. And, and that was okay too.
2: Anisha, you promote, don't you, healthy lifestyles. Um... Yeah. What is it that you do specifically that helps you, maybe living with the consequences of treatment to keep healthy? I think you know,
3: healthy lifestyle for anyone is key, and you know, healthcare professionals, patients, anyone, you know, we have to look after our own health and take ownership of it because you know, no one else will. And and that was the thing that I you know I realized this whole concept of self care. Um, I was useless at it absolutely useless and now for example I took a day of self-care yesterday I find would have found that really hard to do so the whole thing about self-care finding something you love and just immersing yourself in it exercise exercise is key for anyone for our mental health for our physical being to reduce cancer recurrence and to make ourselves feel good about ourselves as well, you know, cancer takes a lot away from you, and exercise for me gave me a lot of my identity back, and that was something that's really important, and I guess it made me feel like that I was living, and that I could, Um, and it helps me manage, actually, my other symptoms, it helps me manage my sciatica, it helps my gut, because actually, if I don't exercise, your gut becomes sluggish, and for me, that has consequences, and eating well, we know that um you know eating well reduces your risk for a variety of conditions but it's also good for your gut um gut uh, brain axis it's you know for me a very important tool and something that I'm very passionate about teaching my children about like eating well fiber you know it's one of the least sexiest nutrients yet it's one of the ones with the most benefits and again for me You know, when you think about a a third of preventable bowel cancers are fibre related, you know, as much as I can with my gut that is not functioning as it should be, you know, I get on as much fibre as I can. So all of those things, you know, trying to do mindfulness that works for, for me. So mindfulness is not listening to headspace, although that's what I used to tell my patients. It works for some people, but for me, it's cooking, it's listening to music, it's going to play a sport that I have to concentrate so hard on, I can't think about anything else. So, for example, tennis was my thing that I went to after um, cancer treatment. But I'm, um, you know, healthy living is something that we all need to put weave into our daily habits. Not something that's a luxury.
1: So on the healthy eating, Anisha, my nanny or my grandma has told me ever since I was born to have turmeric every single day, drink it, eat it, whatever. Is this true? Is this going to cure me? fix me with everything are there any other things around supplements and random dietary trees plants that we should be looking at
3: so i think this is something that needs a lot more research and investment and in fact um it was one of the studies that was going on uh, when i was uh, going through cancer treatment about turmeric and, and and bowel health and we're yet to see the results but you know turmeric is an anti-inflammatory there are health benefits of this um and I always say to people who ask me about this, make sure you check with your oncologist. Whatever you want to take is absolutely fine if you check with oncologists, but please, there's a lot of misinformation out there on the internet. Um, and so I often get messages of, have you tried an alkaline diet to cure your cancer? Have you tried the papaya diet? Um, and, you know, there are lots of things out there that are not going to replace radiotherapy, chemotherapy, surgery. But actually, if you want to take it, there is an adjunct. Um, so I did, I think, take um, turmeric capsules alongside my treatment with... Um, um, some my, my parents actually owned a health food shop. That was their business. So I have been brought up with alternative medicine. So I've got my dad and mum saying look at all these treatments these things can be used and I've got an open mind about it you know but I checked with my oncologist and I remember my mum rocking up with her cannabis oil with her CBD oil one day going Anisha I really think you could do with this for pain relief or to help you sleep because I couldn't sleep with the chemo and I poo-pooed it for a long time and actually I checked with my oncologist I tried it it was brilliant it really was it really helped for me take the edge off a time when going through chemo. I was just, the the drugs and the steroids were making me feel mentally unwell as well and not helping me sleep. So, you know, I always have an open mind, but I don't want people to get sucked into misinformation that, that all these things can cure you because there isn't the research for that right now.
2: So, Anisha, you talked a little bit about your treatment and obviously for healthcare professionals' consent, is really important, and talking to patients about potentially doing some of the standardised treatments, and as we've suggested, some kind of alternative additions as well. You decided that you didn't want to have radiotherapy. Can you talk us through about that decision-making process for you?
3: Yeah, so it wasn't that I didn't want radiotherapy. So it was the fact that my case was borderline. So I had stage three B rectal cancer. Most people with this tumour will get radiotherapy. Uh, And so that that is the bottom line. Most people uh, will get radiotherapy for this stage of tumour. But what happened and the conversations that happened in the multidisciplinary meeting with my surgeon and my oncologist was this. My tumour, they felt maybe operable um, without radiotherapy. And bearing in mind, I was a young female they wanted, if possible, to spare me chemo, radiotherapy before my surgery um, and stoma. Um, and so I basically made the decision with them that they could do this. They could open me up. He could deem whether it was fully operable when he went in. So when I went into theater, I was rolled in, not knowing whether my tumor would be removed or whether I'd wake up with a stoma. And that, was, and that was a decision we took together. Um, and I would always, always follow the advice of my oncologist surgeon. And of course, in that position, I was like, well, you tell me. I know I'm a doctor, but I want you to tell me what to do because I felt so vulnerable. And they are the specialists. And so I took their advice and, and we went in and he felt it was fully operable. And, and he removed it in its entirety. entirety. Um, and thankfully you know I, I mean I woke up with a stoma that was temporary um, and I made the decision actually to have my stoma reversed before I then went on to have um, chemotherapy afterwards which was, was quite gruelling. Um, so I was then spared the effects I guess of radiotherapy beforehand um, but this for the majority and I always do say this it's usually chemo radiotherapy first for, for my stage of tumour. Um, and if they told me that I needed it first, I was totally ready. I was there um, for it. But I, what I really thought was amazing was that it was a case-by-case case sort of decision-making. And I really, really valued that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm obviously really pleased and fortunate that I, that I didn't have to have an extra bit of treatment um, but would absolutely had it hundred um, percent had that been had that been uh, forecast for me.
1: And you talked about some of the consequences of treatment, mm-hmm. um, so obviously late effects. And you mentioned sort of menopause and around sex and intimacy. So again, from our communities, my grandma gave me the sex talk, and it was just don't get someone pregnant. But that education now coming in from being a healthcare practitioner, from medical education, and now a patient. How, would you, how do you find navigating menopause, sex and intimacy I don't know, with, your, with your husband or even with your patients and people who listen to you?
3: So I think it's about communication. And I wrote about this in my book and I wanted to make sure that we had, particularly with the after effects of radiotherapy, and I actually got patients who'd gone through radiotherapy to write, ha- have this contribution in the book so that it was authentic. But I think communication is key. Um, and you know uh, chemotherapy makes you lose your libido it can give you vaginal dryness obviously radiotherapy um, can cause vaginal canal stenosis can put you through into into early menopause as can chemo Um, and I think those conversations we need more around them there's not enough that's done post-treatment in treatment I think to talk about um, these things and address these issues, which are so important, because one of the things that I address in my book as well, and I talk openly, is about relationships, um, and that's not just relationships with those around you, but your intimate relationships and your um, your relationship with your partner, and how what an impact cancer can have, not just on that physical intimacy, but actually um, on you as a couple because suddenly it becomes a one-way one, one way road and it's all about you and it's suddenly your partner is a carer and the balance really tips and, and it took my husband and I a long time to readdress that balance and get back on an even um, sort of kilter uh, and both of us you know went to therapy for this. Um, individually we had to work our own stuff out because what we found sometimes is we were saying it to each other and actually that wasn't the right thing. We both both weren't in that in a vulnerable place. So we both needed to get it out of our systems and then work again with each other to kind of move forwards. And I, I think for me, communication, being open, you know, if you are finding that sex is difficult, you know, there are telling your partner that it's difficult, why it's difficult, what they could possibly do or what alternatives you could... Um, do because there is you know it doesn't have to always be about the physical action of sex there are other things that people can do to be intimate um, and that hopefully this is a short-term thing and also to talk to your team about it Um, so if you are experiencing the effects after radiotherapy to talk to them to make sure that you know about you know using vaginal dilators early and those sort of things um, I think it's so important. So, you know, talking to your health professionals and talking to your, to your um, loved
2: one.
1: What advice would you give to healthcare practitioners speaking to people or patients having sex and intimacy problems from diverse backgrounds where sex and intimacy isn't necessarily what people would talk about in that community?
3: I think that's, it's a, it's a really difficult one um, and actually sometimes I think facilitating that conversation with a healthcare p- practitioner might be useful because you've almost got that third party to explain and I guess hopefully take some of that awkward awkwardness out but I do think making sure we have literature in all languages that we have a space for people to ask questions and know that it's okay to ask questions and know that actually Every person is entitled to have intimacy and a sex life with cancer after cancer. This is not a luxury. This is something that people should have. It's really important and integral to many relationships. And so I think again, it's that that education. Um, and I want I wanted to say as well is that you know as a healthcare professional, remembering that what you say to a patient can last a lifetime. And I've never, ever realised how much my words that I impart to a patient can impact someone and that's in a good and a bad way. So I have had experiences where someone has said something to me, they've not meant any harm. So for example, when I was diagnosed, I can't get the words out of my head, it's nasty. Um, and I almost wish he just said it's cancer, because I hear that word nasty. and. Um, there's lots of other examples that people have told me that and actually it's really made me think what I say, well firstly what I say people listen to but I, but actually can have such a such a profound effect um, and can really then affect their relationship with healthcare. So I think that's a really important lesson for any healthcare professionals listening that our words can really ingrain in people's brains and we have to be careful I guess with our choice of words sometimes as well
2: so Anisha what is a core memory from you writing your book if you had to kind of pick something out through that process because writing a book is not easy um you know is there something that stands out to you that fundamentally went into that book that you look back on it fondly Of,
3: I mean that book is my baby it is everything it is all the nuggets of information that I squirrelled away over the last five years that I wish I'd known um, and that I wish I could share with everyone with my doctor hat and my patient hat and with all the people that have contributed to the book that have been through things that I might not necessarily have been through with all the you know the my specialist being on board with this book and peer reviewing it it's it's just my baby because it's got so much input from a wonderful cancer community from all the people that have looked after me um and i hope it's a book that holds people's hands from the very moment that you're told you're you've got cancer through to all the treatments the fallouts from treatment with practical tips emotional tips education and also all the things that you know i struggled with at times you know where do i go for information about How do I return to work? How do I manage my bowel dysfunction that I've got? And I remember scouring the internet for hours. My husband as a gastroenterologist, hadn't really heard of it. You know, there isn't much literature about the aftermath or life after cancer. And that's something I feel really passionate about, talking about, educating people about, um, giving people hope that you can kind of live, you can live positively after this, you can grow. Um, And I think you know this book was therapy for me it was almost that last not the last piece of the puzzle but it was one of the pieces of the puzzle that all these blogs that I've put on Instagram it allowed me to put everything together in one way just to go this is a release and it was hard work I'm not going to lie you know there were times I cried through writing this book which is why I did it in quite a short space of time because Towards the end, I felt like I couldn't read about my experience anymore. I couldn't keep reading through it, but I really hope um, that it helps people. It's a companion um, to others um, with bowel cancer. or I've been told apparently with other cancers as well. Um, and so, yeah, it was. It is. It's been. It's been a labour of love, an absolute passion project, and I'm really pleased that I got to do this. It was. It was one of those things I'd been toying with, and then, lo and behold, three months later I was I was offered to to write the book so I'm really pleased.
1: This might already be in your book Anisha but what's your like the best highlight of uh, an interaction with a healthcare practitioner through your pathway?
3: Um, I think I think the the best interactions are those people that have just held my hand or wiped my tears. I'm sorry I feel really emotional saying that but I'm um, you know I'll never forget being wheeled down the corridor um with the ana- and, and into the anaesthetic room and I, it was for my first stop and I remember having silent tears and the anaesthetist just holding my hand and just telling me we're going to look after you it's all going to be okay and obviously I didn't know my fate at that point at, at that point of whether the tumour would go or not and you know I met that same anaesthetist ironically two years later when I had to have another procedure for, um, for uh, a potential fistula that I was being investigated for and again she said I remember you and I remembered her as well and it was just such and I said this time I won't be crying but she still held my hand and I think it's those really those small things and of people just showing that kindness that you will never forget when you're feeling so vulnerable so scared um, so yeah, I think I think it's those little things that we as healthcare professionals can do. That's not necessarily the big sort of um, gestures or medical knowledge that you impart or things that you do. It's the actual
2: just acts of kindness. So, Anisha, we could probably talk to you all day. Um, <laughs> we're all as chatty as each other. Um, but we have come to the end of the podcast and we always end on top tips. Um, so, these are top tips that you might give to patients or healthcare practitioners, people coming into a healthcare career. You know, what, would you, what would you put out there as a top tip?
3: Um, I would always say to people, patients, advocate for yourself and communicate Go in there, let people know what you're thinking, what you're expecting, because actually that's much easier for a healthcare professional to manage, to manage expectations, to reassure where we need to, to explain things better if we need to. Um, I, I find it, I actually quite like it when patients write down a few words. Obviously reams of paper, we won't get to it, but if you've got a few bullet points of things that this is what I'm concerned about this is what I'm hoping for um, I'm not quite sure about this so I don't understand that helps facilitate a consultation so much better um, and it really steers uh, steers a consultation and if you feel like because the patients often say to me I feel like that practitioner has not listened to me you know we are not always going to click with who we meet I didn't click with my first um, therapist with my first CBT therapist that's okay that's not because she wasn't good we just didn't gel so I I went and saw another one and I always say this to my patients they say "Oh, I didn't get on with my therapist or this that's okay let's find you someone else or get a second opinion but advocate for yourself let someone else know that this isn't working for you but it doesn't it's not that you're being difficult it just didn't work for you and that's okay Um, and as healthcare care professionals we you know I don't feel offended if someone wants to go and ask someone else I never do and patients ask me for, to refer for a second opinion. That's, that's great, that's absolutely fine because sometimes you just need, you've got doubts in your head, you just need to sow those seeds and make sure that you're on the right pathway for you. Um, so for me, I'm a big communicator, As you see I love talking. Um, so communication, communicate, that is key, both parties
2: no thank you so much anisha um, for coming on the podcast um especially because you are so high profile now when we asked the oh. question we were like oh i'm not sure she'd ever consider coming on rad chat so oh thank you no so not much. at all
3: thank you so much for having me and yeah your podcast is great and it does you know we need this information out there uh because as i say as a patient that's trying to look for this stuff out there we need more of this so thank you
2: no. well thank you all for listening to round chat your hosts today have been myself Jo McMara and Norman jell Anderson. if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed to receive your accredited CPD certificate please complete the Google form linked with the podcast our next guest to feature will be Sam Worcester he'll be discussing his role as a consultant therapeutic age and a therapy specialist thanks for listening and take care